We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order because we want to see everything Jesus said, taught, and did for ourselves in his word firsthand. Last week, we heard Jesus declare that he is the light of the world, God incarnate here to lead and guide anyone who chooses to follow him to life. This week, there's going to be a real change in the tone, focus, and methodology of Jesus's ministry. Notice in Luke 9.51, if you're at Luke 10, which is where we'll be today, it should be right before it. In Luke 9.51, it says, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is in the final season of his ministry before his coming crucifixion, and he now shifts his attention to his disciples, the group of people that have already decided to follow him. They're going to be his emphasis and his focus. He's going to focus on training them rather than addressing the curious crowds. Jesus is going to send out 70 of his disciples on what we might call a short-term missions trip. While most of us are familiar with Jesus having 12 disciples, he also had a larger group that followed him around to hear and learn from him and observe his ministry. And it's out of this larger group that the 70 we're going to read about today will be sent out on mission. You may recall that Jesus sent previously the 12 disciples out on a short-term mission trip in the previous chapter in Luke 9. This is going to be very, very similar to that incident and will teach us some things about how we grow as disciples and what it takes to be used by God. This incident is only recorded in Luke's gospel, most likely because Luke's gospel is written to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and this really shows the non-Jewish reader that Jesus has a heart to reach everyone, so he's sending his disciples out with the gospel. And the issue of discipleship is so crucial because Jesus never told his followers, go into all the world and make converts. Preach the gospel message, get as many people to raise their hands as possible, get as many people to pray the magic prayer as possible so that our numbers can be as large as possible. That's all we wanna do, just get some type of response. Instead, we see in the gospel that Jesus believes a saved person is a disciple. There are no lukewarm or casual Christians in the mind of Jesus. There's only disciples, and that's what he asked us to make more of. He asked us to make more disciples. If you are feeling or if you've ever wondered, what's next for me as a disciple of Jesus? I think you're going to get some answers today. We heard Jesus talk last week about the need to abide in his word, stay connected to his word, because when we're in his word, we get additional instructions, we get additional inspiration and additional education from texts like Luke 10. So let's tune in. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them, underline sent them, two by two before his face, and then underline into every city and place where he himself was about to go. I'm having you underline that because we'll come back to it later. As we said, Jesus did a similar exercise to this with the 12 disciples in Luke 9, because apparently Jesus believes that one of the most important ways to accelerate the growth of a disciple is to get them participating in the mission relatively quickly following conversion. So write this down. Participating in the mission accelerates the discipleship process. Participating in the mission accelerates the discipleship process. And as a practical observation, we notice that Jesus doesn't send his disciples out alone. 
The obvious point to make if you're a preacher is to say, because they're young in the faith and it wouldn't be wise for them to go out alone, they may get intimidated too easily, they may get discouraged too easily, they may be misled by someone they encounter, they may encounter temptation. There's so many obvious reasons why it would be a bad idea for a new believer to go out alone, but I'm not sure that we ever honestly grow out of those dangers. As we mature in the Lord, it may take more to mislead us or more to discourage us, but let's be honest, we're still all susceptible. It can still happen to any one of us. And so I think the lesson here is really for all of us. And the lesson is that we need each other. We need to be in fellowship with other believers. We need to be connected to other believers. However long we've been walking with Jesus, you never mature out of needing to be around other believers. As we've read before, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, I put it on your outline, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. It's not God's plan for you or I to willingly withdraw from being around other believers and instead isolate ourselves. So write this down. The mission will involve being a part of a group of believers. It'll involve being a part of a group of believers. Then in verse two, we read, then he said to them, the harvest is truly great. The harvest Jesus is speaking about here is specific to this place and time in history. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And when he says the kingdom of God is near to you, he's speaking about himself. He's saying, it's, it's me, it's God, I'm here. So yes, the kingdom of God is near to you. Where I go, the kingdom of God is. It's happening right now. And if you're not sure about this interpretation, just remember what Jesus told his disciples back in John 4. He said, I think I put on your outline, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for the harvest. Jesus is saying, don't say someday, someday Messiah will arrive and turn people's hearts to him. He's saying today is that day. I'm here, the Messiah is here. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So get this, Jesus tells his disciples in John 4 that they're reaping the benefits of ministry that other people have done in the past. In other words, there was a season of sowing before there was a season of reaping. The difference is just that in Jesus being there, the season had come for those sown seeds to be harvested. Jesus was showing up in the lives of those people at that moment. And I find this fascinating because Jesus says other people have been sowing before you guys get there. But nobody was explicitly preaching the gospel before Jesus came on the scene. So who is he talking about when he says others have been sowing before the disciples go out with that. He's not talking about himself. He says others, plural. All we can conclude is that there were other faithful people who loved the Lord, who were obeying the Old Testament, faithfully worshiping God, and were doing ministry through that to people even before Jesus became incarnate on the earth as a man. And I share that because it would be wrong for us to read this and conclude that Jesus meant there are always tons of people ready to receive the gospel all the time, everywhere in the world, wherever you are. I know we want to read that and believe that. I want to believe that. But I always believe one of the most important things we need to do is we need to be honest about our practical observations. 
And we probably all recognize that that is not always the case everywhere in the world. It's not always the case. There are places in the world that seem to be, for certain seasons of time, very ripe for the harvest. There's just a revival and people are just turning to God because for whatever reason, it's harvest time in that place. And there are other places that just don't seem to be that way during certain times. But whether we're in a right place for the gospel or a dry place for the gospel, Jesus's instructions are the same. He says, share the gospel because you don't know. You don't know even person to person if it's harvest time or sowing time. But when you go out and you work the field, when you go out and you share Christ, you're either going to be sowing or you're going to be reaping. Both are things that we want to be doing. And even if you don't get to reap, wouldn't you like to be one of those people that Jesus is talking about when he says others have sown? I know I would. In this situation, Jesus was stating the truth. It's harvest time right now. It says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, this is the same thing Jesus said to the 12 disciples when he sent them out two by two. And here's why. This is what Jesus is doing. He begins raising his disciples' awareness of the situation. This is a tragedy, guys. The kingdom of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh is here. And there's nobody to tell that good news that Jesus has come. And Jesus says, let this tragic situation stir your heart to pray. Let this need stir in you a desire to pray. So Jesus points out the need. He asks them to pray for the need. And when you begin to pray for something, guess what happens? You begin to get a heart for the thing that you're praying for. Which is why verse 3 begins with the words, go your way. Go your way. So make a note of this. This is the process. First, Jesus points out the need. Jesus points out the need. After he's done that, Jesus tells them to pray for the need. And their prayers give them a heart for the need. And then Jesus calls upon them to meet the need. He points out the need. He tells them to pray for the need. Their praying gives them a heart for the need. And then Jesus sends them out to meet the need. You know, I think most of us recognize the need in our world. We see our family members. We see our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. We know that they need Jesus. Nobody needs to convince us of the need. But for whatever reason, for a lot of us, a lot of the time, their need doesn't grip our hearts. The solution is to begin to pray for them, begin to pray for them specifically and consistently. And if we do that, we'll find the Lord giving us his heart for those that don't know him. We'll become more urgent with the gospel. We'll become more desperate to find a way to share with people. If you see the need, but you don't have a heart for it yet, pray. Pray for the lost consistently and you'll be amazed how the Lord will change your heart. I also have to recognize, if I'm honest, that apparently praying for the lost is a characteristic of a true disciple. All prayer is good, but I don't know that it's really a great accomplishment to pray for things when you need them. I don't know that it's a great accomplishment necessarily for my kids to pray for everything on their Christmas list to be given to them. That's a pretty logical prayer. But to pray for the lost is different. You're praying outside of yourself for something other than yourself. To pray for the lost is to pray a kingdom prayer. That's the best way that I can put it. It's a prayer that is not for your own benefit. It is a prayer 
that is for the benefit of the glory and fame of Jesus, for the kingdom of God. You're praying for the kingdom of God to be benefited. You're praying for other people to be benefited by knowing Jesus. It's a kingdom prayer. It's a very, very different way to pray. So Jesus says in verse three, go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And this is interesting. When he sends out the original 12, he tells them he's sending them out as sheep among wolves. So why are these guys called lambs? Well, we can only speculate, but I would assume because they're even less equipped than the 12 disciples were. And it's not like if you're a sheep going out among wolves, you're like, yeah, I'm in a good place right now. I'm a sheep. I'm ready for the wolves. You're still horribly unprepared and in danger. But Jesus can't even call the 70 sheep. He says, you guys are just lambs and you're being sent out among wolves. Do you remember what Jesus shared in John 8 in last week's study. Jesus was talking about the one thing you need to do if you're gonna be his disciple. And he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So part of what's going on here is Jesus is making a point about how much he can do through those who will abide in his word. Those who will simply take him at his word. They're not seasoned believers. They're just lambs. All they've got going for them is their faith in Jesus and their willingness to obey his words to them. That's it. Did God genetically equip lambs to deal with wolves? He did not. But you know what protects a lamb among wolves? The shepherd who stands behind the lamb. Our confidence is not supposed to come from our ability to deal with everything life might throw at us. Jesus doesn't tell him, okay guys, you're gonna go out as missionaries. We're doing uh, three months of CrossFit, three months of self-defense, three months of apologetics, a rigorous program. We're gonna learn how to eat snakes and insects so you can survive in the wild. He doesn't do that. He just says, you're going out like lambs among wolves. Here's what you need to know. There's a shepherd standing behind you. He's got a really big stick that he carries with him. Our confidence is supposed to come from knowing that Jesus is able to deal with everything life throws at us. And I love how straightforward Jesus is with his disciples. He, he makes it clear there, there are wolves out there don't be surprised when you encounter people who want to devour you, devour your faith, tear apart the message I'm sending you out. Don't come crying back to me and say, I thought this would all be easy. I would preach there would be revival. He said, there's wolves out there, but I've got you. I've got you. David wrote, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's powerful. But in order to have a testimony like that, you first have to find yourself where? in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of your enemies. Verse four, Jesus says, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. This is the worst pep talk in history. Sending you out like lambs among wolves, take no money, take no supplies, no spare shoes, don't talk to anybody along the way. We read that, greet no one along the road, and we sort of picture someone saying like, hey, how's it going? Can't talk, Jesus said so. That's, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In the Middle East, almost everywhere in the world except in North America, there's a great culture of hospitality, especially in the Middle East. And if you see someone that you know while you're traveling, you cross paths, you're not expected to just high five and keep going. You stop, everything stops. The, the camels are tied up and rested and you're going to catch up over a meal. Most likely one of you is going to invite the other person to stay for the night together. You'll have a fire, you'll eat dinner together, you'll catch up. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, where I'm sending you guys, you're probably gonna bump into a lot of people that you know. 
And if you take them up on every offer of hospitality, your short-term mission trip is going to come to an end and you're never even going to get to the place that I sent you in the first place. So I'm sending you out. Stay on mission. High-five somebody when you see them. Keep walking. Don't get distracted. And I think there's a lesson there for us too because, you know, friends are not bad things. Jesus wasn't saying, watch out for friends. They're evil. He was saying, don't forget the mission you're on. Don't get distracted by things that are good but aren't part of the mission. They'll render you ineffective. Just think honestly, how many believers are not doing bad things but they've become so caught up in good things in life that they are, if you're honest, completely ineffective for Jesus as his ambassadors. They're not doing drugs and out partying. They're doing good things. But their life is so full of these good things that living as ambassadors for Christ got lost along the way. You know, financial goals are a good thing. Buying your first home, getting debt free, those are good goals and good things to have. But not if they become the focus of your life above living for Jesus. Not if they become your identity above being an ambassador for Christ. The classic family distraction. We've just got a lot going on with the family. Got a bunch of kids and a whole bunch of different activities and it's just a busy season. None of those things are bad things. They're good things. Kids are wonderful. Activities are wonderful. Unless they take priority over Jesus and the mission and we become so busy with good things we don't have time for the most important things. I've been working out and getting into shape. The only downside is I don't really have any time with the Lord in the mornings anymore. Jesus warned his disciples, hey, don't get distracted by the good things in life. Enjoy the good things, but remember that you're on a mission. Stay on mission. Paul would write, what soldier involves himself with civilian affairs? These are not bad things. These are good things, but don't forget the mission. So please hear me. I'm not saying you should get rid of every good thing in your life. You know, I've done it, Jeff. I've broken up with every single friend. I've destroyed every relationship so that I can be laser focused on You're probably not going to be very effective. Here's what I'm saying. Make a note of this. I'm saying that good things cease to be good things when they take priority over living for Jesus. Good things cease to be good things when they take priority over living for Jesus. So let's really look at Jesus' instructions and consider the implications of them. He tells them, take no money, take no traveling supplies, no spare shoes, and don't rely on any previous relationships you have. What Jesus is doing is he's removing every possible safety net, every backup plan from the situation. Why is he doing that? Because it's been well said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And in this case, all they're gonna have is Jesus' word to them. That's it. How many of you have stories about God showing up in a situation where he was your only hope? How many of you have God stories about him showing up when you were in a time and a place of need? One of the greatest tragedies of the Christian life is when believers are unwilling to trust God enough to find themselves in situations where he's all that they have. Because that's where the God stories are found. They're not found in the safety of the boat. The God stories are found out of the boat in the storm. Just ask Peter. One of the reasons we moved back here was just because we wanted some more God stories of our own. I don't like telling other people's God stories. I'd much rather have my own God stories. And let me tell you this, no matter what the future holds, 
We have some incredible God stories of God showing up in the life of our family. And I wouldn't trade those stories for anything in the world because I've had the chance to see the faithfulness of God over and over and over again with my own eyes. It's really true. You'll never know Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. The end result of learning that lesson is always greater faith. So make a note of this. Jesus is intentionally placing his disciples in uncomfortable situations to grow their faith. He's intentionally placing them in uncomfortable situations to grow their faith. The old analogy is really true. You don't grow, you don't become physically healthy by staying comfortable. You have to put your muscles and your body through discomfort, tension. You have to stress it, literally, to produce growth. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm going to put you guys in an uncomfortable situation, a situation where you have no choice but to rely on me so that you will learn that you can rely on me. When we step out in faith and God comes through in an amazing way, you know what happens is he becomes very, very real, very, very real. And we begin to grasp the truth that he really is with us. And when you're able to say with honesty, I understand that God is with me, changes your whole life, changes everything. Do you remember Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler? He asked Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus responded by saying, sell all you have and give it to the poor. The Bible says the young man went away troubled for he had much wealth. Jesus knew that as long as that rich young ruler was rich, he would always trust his money more than he would trust God. And so Jesus' solution is, oh, you want to grow? You want to have eternal life? Your issue is money. You're always going to trust your money more than you trust me, so we got to get rid of your money. It's a very simple thing in the mind of Jesus. Jesus wasn't saying money is bad. He was saying, you, I know you. You cannot be rich and trust me. You'll always trust your money more than me, so you got to make a choice what you're going to trust in. He was inviting the rich young ruler to take a radical step of faith. Tragically, the rich young ruler declined. And we'll never know what the Lord would have done in his life had he chosen the path of faith instead. We'll never know. Jesus often grows our faith by removing our ability to provide for ourselves. For most of us, that's the only way that we seem to learn that he really will take care of us. But sadly, Most Christians turn down the invitation to trust Jesus in a radical way. Please know, I'm not saying bring that upon yourself. I did it, Jeff. I threw away all my money on Christmas Day down at Coquitlam Center. Don't do that. (laughs) I'm saying when the Lord calls you, respond to the call of the Lord. But most Christians won't. Most Christians won't. Especially if it means trusting the Lord with their very welfare. We say, I'll trust you with my life, Lord. Will you trust me to provide a place for you to live? Food for you to eat? Meaningful relationships? Money for you? Everything else, Lord. I trust you with everything else. You notice how quickly God takes these new believers, these new disciples, and thrusts them into situations where they're going to be up the creek without a paddle if God doesn't come through for them? Why does he do that? Because faith is everything. Faith is the love language of God. It's the currency of the kingdom. It's the key to the Christian life, and you cannot please God without it. Faith is everything. So from the perspective of Jesus, he says, you get saved. Be in my word, and the number one characteristic we need to develop in you is faith. 
Trust in me. That's what we need to go to work on. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, you've got no money, no supplies, no backup plan, and no relationships to fall back on. You guys are ready to go. Great. So make a note of this. If Jesus has called us, then Jesus believes we're ready. If Jesus has called us, then Jesus believes we're ready. Verse five says, but whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, when you show up at a town and a house, show up speaking blessing to people. If they receive it, that's great. But if they won't be blessed, that's their choice. And that's how the gospel works. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus came to bless. Does that mean everybody will be blessed? No, it doesn't. Who gets blessed? Those who are worthy? No. Those who are willing to receive him. We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but I want you to notice that Jesus is telling his disciples that there will be houses, there will be people who will reject them. Jesus doesn't say, guys, listen, don't forget, if you're representing me rightly, if you're interacting with people the Jesus way, then everybody's going to love you and welcome you. And you'll know you're doing it wrong if somebody doesn't like you. He doesn't say that. He actually gives them protocols for those who will reject them. He says, when it happens, this is what I want you to do. Verse seven, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. I believe this is one of these instructions that was for their benefit at the moment, but also for the benefit of the early church, the first missionaries, and for us today. So here's some applications of this. Jesus is telling them, listen, stay where you get invited to stay. When you roll into town and someone says, you're here, I heard you preaching, this message is amazing, it's wonderful, it's so full of grace, come and stay in my house. He's saying, listen, if the first person who invites you is a poor person, don't leave their house when you get a better invitation from somebody else in the town, when you can get an upgrade. Stay, as long as you're in that town, you stay where you were first invited. But then he also says this, he says the laborer's worth his wages. He says, sometimes people are gonna be poor, sometimes they're gonna be wealthy and I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna put you up in a mansion. He's saying if that's the first person who invites you, go stay in the mansion. Don't buy into the idea of some misguided piety as though it would be wrong for you to do that. Jesus is saying, don't discriminate against the poor person, but don't discriminate against the wealthy person either. Eat the food, eat the bare rice plate of the person who that's the best they can give and eat the roast wild boar if that's the best the person can give you. Just accept hospitality from whoever extends it first to you. And be a good guest, don't be a picky eater. This is why I'm not a missionary in the third world. <laughs> not compatible. So. <laughs> I disgrace the gospel. In the book of Acts, we read about Peter's vision where the Lord reveals to him that he can eat food that isn't kosher. So to the early church missionaries, when they were reading this, they would have been reminded that Jesus is saying, hey, someone serves you lobster and you're a good Jewish boy, dig in, eat it up, because the message is more important. The message is more important than your cultural differences. If I'm going to represent Jesus, write this down, I need to not let my personal preferences get in the way of the message. In other words, if I can build bridges with people rather than walls, I should do that. The greatest threat, I think, for most of us in this area is probably social media. You know, I have a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions. But if I'm honest, 
everybody who I'm connected to on Facebook, the people who don't know the Lord yet who see my Facebook posts, they don't need to know what I think about global warming or bike lanes (laughs) or kale. You're saved. That's why it's okay for me to rant here. Because those are really not issues of importance. They're not important biblical issues. I don't need to divide or destroy a relationship by revealing I have a firm opinion that is different to yours over something that doesn't really matter. These are issues that are meaningless, but they can build walls that will stop me from ever being able to reach certain people. Jesus wants his disciples to know, hey, if if you're gonna follow me, then you need to realize that the message of the gospel is much more important than you getting to broadcast your own opinion on all the issues of the day. You're giving up your right to vent your opinion publicly because if it gets in the way of one person hearing the message, it's not worth it. It's a difficult instruction and a profoundly wise instruction. And it happens even in the church. Cultural differences, personal preferences get in the way of church. You might be familiar with the famous worship wars that are still happening in many churches. You know, a a generation rises up and says, I was wondering if we could maybe play some songs like from the last 20 years versus the last 200 years. Somebody says, sacrilege, this is blasphemy. God doesn't move in modern music. Everybody knows Jesus wrote the hymns. And uh, churches divide over this stuff. They divide over this stuff. Even when a small church grows, you can be guaranteed that someone's gonna come to the pastor and say, you know, I just liked it more when things were small. And the pastor has to think, well, I thought these people not going to hell might balance out some of your sadness, but that was just me. So even in the church, we have to be leery that personal preferences never get in the way of the message. Verse nine, Jesus says, and heal the sick there and say to them, underline this phrase, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Make sure you catch this. Jesus doesn't give them a lesson on how to heal the sick. This floors me. He doesn't share any special techniques. He doesn't say, now guys, now listen, when you pray for someone, don't do a straight on hand. Do a side hand on the head. It's a more tender touch. It's gonna look much better in the photos and the newsletters. He doesn't give them any lessons on how to heal the sick. All they get is an instruction. Heal the sick there. How do they even know that they have the ability to heal the sick? How do they know? There's no record that the 70 have ever done that before up to this point. How do they know? Because Jesus told them to do it. And if he told them to do it, then that must mean that he's given them the power to do it. It's this faith principle of abiding in, trusting in his word. It's all he gives them to hold on to, his word. And you know what? It was enough. It's still enough. I also noticed that they don't have a profoundly emotional event. This is not a very emotional speech from Jesus. This is, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. All they have is God's word and their decision to trust his word. We also see there's a balance here. When somebody welcomes them, they're instructed to meet the practical need of that person who's welcomed them to the best of their ability by healing the sick. To preach the gospel but to ignore the practical needs of those who receive the gospel would be sharing the truth without love. To only meet the practical needs and ignore the message would be love without truth. It would be the social gospel. Jesus commands them to heal the sick in the homes of those who welcome and receive them. It reminded me of a story of a friend of mine who passed away several years ago that I knew in Florida. His name was Bobby Michaels, and he was a a famous adult contemporary singer, did a lot of Broadway shows and stuff like this. 
got radically saved and began doing the singing ministry. And the first time he went to Cambodia, he went there and he goes to this village. The whole village lines up, a couple hundred people. They're all sitting on the ground and he sings and he preaches a message and people are just sort of sitting there like this. And afterwards he goes to like the village leader and he's like, what's with this crowd? Like they are dead. They are like lifeless people. This is the worst crowd I've ever sung for. And he said, well, it's because they haven't eaten in a week. He's like, ooh, oh. And so you know what he did? He, he took every dollar that he had in his bank account and he arranged to buy truckloads of rice and get it to the village and he fed them and then they continued to minister there. They had received the message. They welcomed the message, but they were starving. And that began a ministry that continues to this day of bringing in truckloads of rice to these villages in Cambodia. It was the truth and love working together. One without the other just doesn't work. And we also notice this. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to convince anybody of the truth. He simply tells them to declare the truth. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus doesn't say be prepared with at least three different angles and three different approaches. He just says, tell them I'm coming. Their hospitality or lack of it will reveal their response. So make a note of this. We're called to declare the truth, not convince people of truth. We're called to declare the truth, not convince people of truth. It is a myth from hell, seriously that you cannot share the gospel with somebody unless you're familiar with advanced astrophysics, theoretical quantum mechanics and cosmology because they might ask some in-depth question I can't answer. That's like a myth from the pit of hell. And so it's like, but you know what? Once I have my master's degree, then I'll be ready. Well, what if you encounter someone who has a master's in a field you didn't study in? I'll have to go back to school again. That's not what happens. Jesus says, just declare the truth. Declare it. it. It is the truth. You don't have to convince anybody that this is the truth. Just declare it. I love the picture here. The idea is that you're a herald. And a, a herald is given a message by the king. The herald goes and stands on the street corner and reads what the king says. Thus saith the king. Blah, 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 blah. Done. That's it. He doesn't say, thus saith the king. And let me just give you some context if you have some issues with the king's current policies in any relevant areas of our society. He just says, this is what the king says. Deal with it. Verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is heavy duty. Jesus doesn't say, if they won't listen, apologize for inconveniencing them, apologize for offending them. He doesn't say that. Shaking off the dust from your feet was a sign that you would no longer have anything to do with a person or a place and that judgment was coming to it. That's why we don't do it here. It wouldn't be taken as a powerful statement. People would just look at us like we're crazy. But at this time, there was a serious gesture and what Jesus is really saying is, go out into the streets, get everyone's attention. Hey, everybody. Done. We shared the truth with you. You rejected it. Don't be confused about what's taken place here. The truth came to you and you did not receive it. That's what he's saying to do. Here's the idea. It's, it really is the same way Jesus ministered. Jesus came bringing a message of peace and love and hope and reconciliation. However, to those who would not receive it, Jesus had this to say, and we heard him last week saying to the Pharisees, the hard-hearted people, doesn't share the peace and love message at that point. He says, you won't receive it. Here's the situation. You will die in your sins. Where I'm going, heaven, 
you can't go. Your father is Satan. That's why you can't go. Jesus did even the same thing. It was intense. And I don't want to encourage you to necessarily do that to all your friends when you share the gospel. But I think the lesson we should take from it is that we're not to minimize the seriousness of someone rejecting the gospel. We're not to minimize it. And it may be appropriate to say, hey, I just need you to know you're rejecting the most important thing you'll ever hear. If you ever change your mind, please let me know. This is the most important news you'll ever hear in your life. We don't need to be too Canadian and apologetic and say, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sorry if it was weird for you. I just w- wanted to share because it's important for me. Jesus says, don't minimize it. Don't minimize it. This is the message of Jesus. It is the most important message in the world. And as we mentioned briefly earlier, it really impacts me because these guys are being given evangelism instructions. Get this. Evangelism instructions from Jesus Christ. Do you think we can trust that his method and technique are legit? I think think we can trust that Jesus' model is probably legitimate. The Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally empower these men to heal the sick on demand. What do I mean by on demand? I mean with such certainty that they can say, I noticed you have someone sick in the house. Bring them to me. I will heal them in Jesus' name. On demand. To cast out demons on demand with absolute certainty. And yet Jesus' instructions reveal that rejection is still inevitable. They're going to be rejected by many, probably by most, with absolute certainty. I don't think I could bring anybody into the church to do an evangelism seminar who could give better instructions than Jesus. I figured out a few holes in Jesus' method. Couldn't do that. The disciples that Jesus sent out even before his death and resurrection experienced rejection. Did Jesus himself experience rejection? Yeah, throughout his whole ministry. And then he experienced the ultimate rejection of being murdered by the very people he came to reach. That's rejection. And yet, if I'm honest, the number one reason that I don't share the gospel the way I should is because I'm still looking for the method of evangelism that will remove the chance of rejection. If I can just find the right system, I'm sure there's a system out there where it will only be taken as good news to everyone that I share it with. The only way to come up with a system that does that is to change what the gospel is and remove everything offensive from it. And there are people doing that. And people love them. I'm preaching to myself here more than any of you. It's, it's not okay, if I'm honest, that I fail to share the gospel because I'm scared of rejection. I'm scared of an awkward moment or a door being closed in my face or having someone that I might have to see again think I'm weird. It's not okay. And I need God to change me and I pray that he does. And I'd ask you to pray that he does. And I mean that because I, I struggle with this just like you do. And I use the same excuses that most of us do. Which is, well, I am evangelizing. I've just got a long-term plan. Like I'm working a long con. You know, assuming my neighbor lives next to me for the next 15 years, sooner or later someone they know is going to die tragically. That will be my moment. Jesus was rejected. His disciples were rejected. But I deserve better. I deserve better. Write this down. It's not our responsibility to be successful. It's our responsibility to be faithful. 
It's not our responsibility to be successful. It's our responsibility to be faithful. And just think that Jesus knew, he knew how he would be rejected when he came to the earth. He knew that, and he came anyway. It's staggering. And just in case the disciples were unclear about how serious Jesus is when he speaks about proclaiming judgment on those who reject the gospel, he's now going to curse three cities that rejected him. Verse 12, he says, but I say to you, it'll be more tolerable in that day, the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that city. So he's saying it's going to be better for the people of Sodom on the day of judgment than for the people in the towns that you go to who won't receive you or this message. Sodom, the the city that was destroyed by fire from heaven? As we've talked about before, those who don't believe in the Lord, who die in their sins, willingly, they will be judged based on the amount of revelation that they received during their life. The more of the gospel, the more of Jesus, the more revelation they were given, the more harsh the judgment is going to be. And Jesus is saying that these towns and villages that the 70 are going to go into, He's saying, listen, you're giving them incredible revelation. You're proclaiming the gospel. And then me, Jesus in the flesh, is going to walk through those villages preaching the gospel. He says, that's about as much revelation as you can get. So those cities are going to be judged harshly when they reject this message, when they reject me. He's going to say later, because when they're rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Jesus goes on and says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Jesus had done great and mighty miracles in Chorazin and Bethsaida. They had glimpsed the kingdom incarnate, Jesus in the flesh, and rejected him. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile Phoenician cities on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and Ezekiel 26 through 28 prophesied the conquering and destruction of those cities in three phases. Ezekiel's back in the Old Testament. At the time that Jesus is speaking this, those cities, Tyre and Sidon, had already been destroyed. The prophecy had been fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, you know, Tyre and Sidon, those cities that were destroyed because they wouldn't repent of their wickedness, those cities that are in ruins right now, if I had done in those cities what I did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, They would have repented. They would have repented. Verse 15, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. The Greek New Testament says this better. It says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be thrust down to Hades. Jesus is alluding to that heart of pride that was present in Lucifer when he coveted the highest throne of heaven, that heart of pride that was present in Babel when they said, let's build a tower, a monument to heaven to make a great name for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, just as Lucifer had ambitions of the highest throne of heaven, just as the men at Babel had ambitions of reaching heaven, but ended up going in the opposite direction, so too will be the fate of hard-hearted Capernaum. Out of pride, They think they're lofty. They think they're heavenly minded. They're really destined for hell. Jesus now shifts his focus back to addressing his disciples. And he says, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Just as Jesus told the religious leaders that by rejecting him, they were rejecting the father. Jesus tells his disciples, listen, when they reject you, they're rejecting me. 
verse 17, then the 70 underlined returned with joy. Returned with joy. I love that. When you and I step out and trust the Lord, when we step out and tell people about the Lord, when we take him at his word and let him stretch our faith by pulling us out of our comfort zone, we will always come back full of joy and with stories about what the Lord has done. Those of you who have trusted the Lord in significant ways in your life, you got any regrets about that? No regrets. Would you do it again? Of course you would. Wasn't always easy. Wasn't always easy. But because in that place of faith, God is so real and so close, I know you'd do it again because there's nothing better than being in that place where you might say, the whole world is falling down around me, but God has never been more real than he is right now. He's never been closer than he is right now. I've never been more certain that he is with me than I am right now. That's better than anything. Write this down. The result of stepping out in faith and trusting the Lord is always joy. It's always joy. The end result is always joy. Nobody has the testimony, I trusted the Lord, I heard from him, I did what his word said, and it ruined my life. Not even those who were martyred for the gospel have that testimony. You know what their testimony is? I trusted God to the very end, and I gained life. I gained life. So they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A lot of commentators have all kinds of theories on this. I don't think the reality is as complicated as what any commentator writes. I think Jesus is just making a really epic passing comment here. So they come back to Jesus full of joy and they're amazed. They say, even, even the demons obey us in your name. Jesus is saying, well, duh. I was there. I watched Satan cast out of heaven by Michael, not by me, not by my father, not by the spirit. Now we didn't even get off the throne to deal with that. We just had Michael take out the trash. I watched it happen. So yeah, the demons are subject to you in my name. I have authority over everything. He continues in verse 19, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Okay. So, Wes, do we have the box of snakes? Let's, no, no, we're not, we're not gonna do that. So who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the 70. He's talking to the 70 disciples. Is he talking to us? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. This seems to be a very unique situation that is still informative and instructional to us. However, an honest view of history, here's what I mean by that. Just the fact that millions of believers have been martyred over the last 2,000 years, thousands of missionaries would seem to make it clear that this is not a promise of permanent power or abilities that are given to all Christians all the time. The fact that there are martyrs would seem to disprove that theory. The evidence seems to suggest that Jesus was given them specific authority and power for a place and a time, a season in history to give the gospel a head start, so to speak. But I will say this, if Jesus calls you to a specific work and mission, you can trust that nothing is going to stop that from being fulfilled if you stay in what the Lord has called you to do. There will be difficulties. There'll be serpents and scorpions, but the difficulties won't defeat you if the Lord has called you. If you stay in the Lord's will, you are invincible until he determines your time is up. And I know that explanation's a bit opaque, but it's the best I can do 
Don't go grabbing any snakes because you want to get clarity on this verse, okay? So we notice even in the New Testament, just in line with the same school of thought, in the New Testament, we notice a reduction in the power and frequency of healings from the ministry of Jesus to the 12 apostles down to the early church. So Jesus heals on demand with 100% consistency. Jesus doesn't pray for someone and be like, oh, well, nothing happened. Guess the father wasn't on board with that one. That never happened to Jesus. He heals on demand. In this season of time, when he sends the 70 out, they heal on demand. When he sends the 12 out, they heal on demand. Peter, the 12, after Pentecost in Acts 2, do many healings, but not as many as Jesus. And not necessarily on demand like Jesus did. They seem to do it more when the Lord prompts them to do it. And by the time we get to Paul's ministry in the latter part of the first century A.D., Paul has a physical infirmity that we know he asked the Lord to heal three times and the answer he gets from God is my grace is sufficient for you. He has to leave a good friend, Trophimus, in the port of Miletus because Trophimus is sick. Why doesn't Paul just heal him? Because God has begun to work in a different way. Now the Lord is doing something bigger. The church has been birthed, it's exploded. He says, now I heal when there's a specific reason I wanna do that, but sometimes I don't because it's a fallen world. And sometimes I don't because I'm doing something through that in the heart of the person. So we even see there was an exceptional season of supernatural giftedness during the early part of the church, undeniable based on the accounts of the Gospels and the book of Acts. Verse 20, nevertheless, this is so important, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but underline, rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I love this so much. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you power and authority that's gonna blow your mind. You're gonna see miracles. You're gonna see signs and wonders, but don't ever let your rejoicing be based on that. He's not saying don't be stoked when good things happen. He's saying don't lose your perspective. Remember that despite all you see, despite all I'm gonna do through you, The fact that you've been saved, you've been brought into my family, forgiven of your sins, with your names written in heaven, your salvation is the greatest of all miracles. So our joy as believers is not supposed to be connected to whether or not we feel like God is doing a lot in our lives right now. We're not supposed to come to church and be the most passionate worshiper on the weeks where we're like, oh, I just feel like God is moving in my life and doing all these things for me, and then the next week be like, God didn't really do a lot for me this week. I don't have a lot to celebrate. Didn't do very much. Make a note of this. Jesus says our joy is to be rooted in our salvation. Our joy is to be rooted in our salvation. I was a worship pastor for a decade full time and this is what hits me about this. If we really believe this, no worship leader should have to stand up at the beginning of worship and say, okay, Now here's a thought for the day to get us focused. Just remember that you're all champions in Jesus and you're all winners and now let's worship. Any worship leader, if if we actually believe this as Christians, should be able to stand up at the beginning of worship and say, you guys still saved? Yes? Good, so our motivation is covered for worship today. Let's sing. That's it. You're still saved? Yeah, okay, good. Because I don't have any thought to motivate you to be joyful more than the fact that we've been saved from hell and brought into the family of God and made sons and daughters of the Most High King. I don't have anything to top that. It's not a better offer if I say, I just want you to know if you're having money troubles, they won't last forever. 
That shouldn't get us more excited than the fact that we're saved and we belong to Jesus. Should just be, hey, you're still saved? Yep. Okay, so I assume you guys are stoked to worship today. That's the pattern that he's talking about in church and in daily life, that our joy is to come from our salvation, not from whether it's a good season or a bad season or we perceive the Lord doing a lot or doing a little, our salvation. Also, if you focus on what God does through you, you may end up taking the credit. The Lord's really gifted me. The Lord's doing a lot through me. I'm getting really, really excited about this. But if you focus on what God has done in you, that he saved you, there's no way to take credit for that. Only Jesus gets the credit for saving you. So when God uses you to minister to someone, it can be easy to say, lucky for you, I was here. Yes, the Lord did it, but through me, here I am. But when you focus on what God has done in you, all you can say is, where would I be without Jesus? What would I have done if it weren't for Jesus? As we found before, Jesus believes we shouldn't follow signs and wonders. Rather, signs and wonders follow those who believe. And don't miss this. We're never supposed to get over the fact that Jesus saved us. We're never supposed to get over that. It's supposed to be an endless source of joy for us. And one of my favorite things about the church is I look forward to every week just being together with other believers who have come together just to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. If that's all we did, that would be a great reason to be together as the church, just to say thank you. I pray that we'll never get over the good news that Jesus has saved us and our names are written in heaven, in permanent ink, heavenly sharpie. Verse 21, he says, in that hour, underline, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. It just means simple people, idiots. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And you you just know Jesus has a huge smile on his face as he prays this. He's taking great joy in the way his Father works. Did you catch this? The disciples come back rejoicing and they're like, "We, we can't believe it. Like, you actually did stuff through us that was unbelievable. And it says, Jesus rejoiced. Those words to me are staggering. Jesus rejoiced. Why? Because Jesus is blessed when we trust his father and we trust his word. It's like the pride a parent feels as they watch their child take their first steps. Jesus is watching them take their first steps of faith. They're walking by faith and it blesses Jesus. And this just struck me as I was doing this. Do you realize that when you choose to trust Jesus, he rejoices. He rejoices. Make a note of this. Our faith brings Jesus joy. It brings him joy. And if you've ever sincerely wondered, man, what can I do for the Lord to show him how thankful I am over what he's done for me? This is your answer. This is what you can do for Jesus. Believe him. Believe him. Believe what he says and live your life as though you actually believe what he says because your faith brings Jesus joy and it blesses him. Jesus prays, Father, you know these are not the best or the brightest, but Lord, they love me and they love you and that's what you're really looking for. You know what this group has going for them? Only one thing. They believed Jesus. They believed him. 
They took him at his word. That's it. Their personal abilities, their issues, their histories were not part of the equation. They believed Jesus and took him at his word. That's it. Verse 22, Jesus says, all things have been delivered to me by my father. He's saying the father's given him authority over everything. So just think about this for a second because this floors me as well. While Jesus is walking on the earth, while he's being crucified, even in that moment, the father has given him total authority over everything. That total authority wasn't something that he left behind and only regained when he went to heaven. Jesus is saying presently, this moment, I have total authority over everything, everything. But he chooses not to exercise it. He yields to the Father, does what the Father calls him to do moment to moment, all the way to his death on the cross, to our benefit. But he had all things under his feet already. He had authority over everything. And he didn't play that card. He says, and no one knows who the son is except the father and who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. There's no way to get to the father without going through Jesus. If Jesus is revealed to you and you reject Jesus, you will not find the father through nature or art or having your first child. If you reject Jesus, the father will not say, let's try a different approach. Those other things may lead you to Jesus. But if you first reject Jesus, you'll never find God in or through anything else. And the greatest example of this is the Jews. In Romans 11, Paul tells us that the Jews right now have been partially blinded because why they rejected Jesus. Even though they have the Old Testament, all the traditions, the history, they can't get to the Father because they rejected Jesus. And the solution to that problem, when it will be solved in the future, is not that the Father is going to make another way. It's that the Father is going to open their eyes to see Jesus clearly. They will still go through Jesus. There's no way around Jesus for anybody. And that day will come when they'll see him as their Messiah. They'll recognize him and they'll turn to him. Verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. So speaking of himself, he tells the disciples, you have no idea how blessed you are to be seeing me in the flesh on the earth right now. You have no idea what the prophets of the Old Testament would have given to be standing in your shoes, your sandals right now. You have no idea what David would have given to be here right now. We have no idea what they would give to be in our shoes right now. Not because of where we live or what our lifestyle is, but because we have the Holy Spirit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When we pray, we don't have to wonder, am I still technically ceremonially clean? I should probably wash my hands again seven times. We have permanent ever-present access to God. Something nobody ever enjoyed till the Holy Spirit was given to believers. And in his word, God showed us everything. Isaiah and all the prophets wrote things looking ahead to the time of the Messiah, but they didn't have the full picture. We have the full picture how everything works together and where everything is going. We're able to see it clearly. He's shown us everything, even how it's all gonna end. Moses didn't have that. 
Abraham didn't have that. David didn't have that. Elijah didn't have that. We are so blessed. We're so blessed to live in the time that we do. In conclusion, I'm going to say this. As a reminder, faith is everything. It's everything. When a little kid stands on the edge of a pool, dad's in the pool and dad says, jump. You know what determines whether or not the kid jumps? Whether or not the kid believes dad will catch them. That's what it all comes down to. And that's why faith means so much to our Heavenly Father. When we jump, when we step out in faith, when we trust Him with our lives, that's our expression, our way of saying, I believe you. I believe you. I believe your word. And that blesses Him. There's no kid who jumps off the side of a pool into the arms of his dad while his dad has a frown on his face. You'll never see it. The dad is always smiling. Even if the dad doesn't know why, he's smiling because his kid trusts him and just jumps, just jumps. And the father is blessed because he knows they have no idea how dangerous what they're doing is. They just trust me and they love that. That's why it means so much to God when we're able to say, yeah, we know how dangerous it is, but we still trust you anyway. It blesses him. If your heavenly father's calling you to trust him in any area of your life specifically, please know that he'll catch you. He'll catch you. He's not going to let you go. Secondly, isn't it incredible that Jesus asked us to be his representatives? Have you ever met a Christian in your life where after you walked away, the nicest thing you could say is he's an idiot or she's an idiot? Like, I, this, this is all I can say. I could say a lot more, but that's the nicest thing I could say. And maybe you've met a Christian and you thought, you know, if, if my salvation depended on meeting them as the first Christian I really got to know, I would probably be spending eternity in hell. I'm sure I'm that Christian for somebody, but the Lord uses us anyway. He chooses to use us. It's extraordinary that he chooses to use us. And one of the things I was reminded of when studying this text is that abiding in God's word means acting on God's word. We're not abiding in God's word if we just learn the right way to live, if we just learn the theory of the right way to evangelize, the right way to love people, if we can articulate it brilliantly. Jesus taught his disciples to trust the Father, and, and then you know what he did next? He put them in a situation where they had to trust the Father. He taught them they had authority over demons. You know what he did next? He put them in confrontations with people who were demon-possessed. There's this back and forth in Jesus' model of discipleship where he teaches and he gives almost instant application. That's why you're all like, Jeff, don't teach on patience. Please don't teach on patience. Perhaps for some of us, there hasn't been any new revelation, the feeling that we're seeing more of God in a while because we haven't actually applied some of the things that he's revealed to us. Perhaps he's revealed things in his word. He's called us to step out and trust him or to obey. And we've said, no, let's just go on to the next lesson. Jesus will usually say, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay at this lesson till you're ready to learn it. How long is it going to take? It's always easier to submit. Always. Trust me. I don't know about you, but I want more of Jesus. I want as much of him as I can get. I want to know him. I want to live my life stepping out, trusting him radically, seeing him do miracles with my own eyes. I want to see that in my life, in my lifetime. Verse 2 told us that Jesus sent these disciples out into every city and place 
where he himself was about to go. So they were sent out as ambassadors to tell people Jesus was coming, to tell them, get ready for the arrival of Jesus. This was during his first coming. We know there's gonna be a second coming. Jesus is coming again. And the mission he's given us, the message he's given us is to let people know that he has come and he's coming again. And when war breaks out, do you know what happens to all the foreign ambassadors in a country? They get called home. They get called home. And if you were with us for our study of Revelation, then you know that the church, all those who believe and trust in Jesus, will be called home to heaven to be with him just before war and chaos breaks out on the earth. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. There's no plan B. And he's entrusted to us the message of the gospel that Jesus has come and he is coming again. I don't know about you, but I long to be a better ambassador for Jesus. I long to really believe that it's not my responsibility to be successful, it's my responsibility to be faithful. We need boldness and we need faith and we need to be okay joining our Savior in being rejected by people. We need to be okay in joining the 12 apostles in being rejected by people, joining the 70, joining the early church, joining people who were rejected at the expense of their very lives. God's saying, hey, that's, that's how the church was born. Bunch of losers who were rejected over and over again. And hell itself can't stop it. It's an upside down model of everything. It's the power of God. And Jesus is saying, why, why don't you join in that? Why don't you join in that? And I just pray that his Holy Spirit would grip me and would grip us in a way where instead of viewing rejection as failure, we would begin to say, well, I'm, I'm actually joining in some small way in what Jesus went through for me. And that makes Jesus real. It makes him real. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I pray for us collectively and especially for myself, just because I know myself. Uh, Father, I pray that we would not dismiss the gospel, sharing the gospel as something that a certain group of people are called to do, just the gifted. Lord, because we were all saved by the gospel, saved all of us the same way. So, Father, I pray that whatever you need to do in us, wherever you need to start, if it's just giving us a burden that leads us to pray, God, we accept your invitation to pray for the lost so that you can begin to mold and shape our heart. Lord, I know that any conviction that we feel right now, it's easy for us to shake that off by this afternoon if we want to. But Father, I pray you'd move us to that next step. If you've shined a light on the need right now, then Lord, would you lead us to pray that we might acquire your heart for the lost. And Lord, we, we repent if we've bought into the myth that there's a way we can avoid rejection. If you were despised, you were forsaken, you were mocked, you were the man of sorrows for us. Lord, and in, in truth, we're being asked to do so much less. 
so much less. So Father, I pray you'd find in us faithfulness and the understanding that real success is faithfulness. It's declaring the truth. It's not our job to convince. It's our job to simply declare the truth faithfully. Lord, help our love for you to be greater than our fear of man. Do a work in us. Change us. Father, I pray as well that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would minister to any heart in this room today that is dealing with fear. Fear that is holding us back from trusting you fully in an area of life. We know that you're trustworthy, Lord. The issue is not your character. It's that we have believed a lie about you. So, Father, we repent for that this morning, if need be. And we confess the truth is that you're faithful, you're good, and you're worthy of trust, Lord. And so we trust you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. We put our faith in you, Lord God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.